In the last two chapters before the one we're about to be in, 2 Corinthians 12, I would say that Paul has delved into language that he rarely uses. It's highly self-referential, not reverential, referential, meaning he has gotten down to brass tacks about all the ways the way of Jesus has led him and changed him and cost him ever since the roadway into Damascus. That's where we've been. In fact, just before this, he went almost point by point through every persecution and hardship that he had ever endured uh, just to help the Corinthians understand who they're actually dealing with. Why? Because on their end, they had started dealing instead with men who Paul mocks as, quote, super apostles. These are false teachers who were trying to get as much as they could out of this whole gospel thing. So that's where we've been, and really that's where we are. So 2 Corinthians 12 in the Phillips translation. Here we go. No, I don't think it's really a good thing for me to boast at all. But I will just mention visions and revelations of the Lord himself. And before I go on into this famous description of an experience of the, quote, third heaven, I want to tell you, I disagree with the perspective that this describes Paul himself. And I'll explain why while we're in it. But I just wanted you to listen differently, perhaps like you were just hearing this for the very first time. So here we go, continuing on from verse 2. I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, had the experience of being caught up into the third heaven. I don't know whether it was an actual physical experience. Only God knows that. All I know is that this man was caught up into paradise. I repeat, I do not know whether this was a physical happening or not. God alone knows. This man heard words that cannot and indeed must not be translated into human speech. I am honestly proud of an experience like that. But I have made up my mind not to boast of anything personal, except of what may be called my weaknesses. If I should want to boast, I should certainly be no fool to be proud of my experiences, and I should be speaking nothing but the sober truth. Yet I am not going to do so, for I don't want anyone to think more highly of me than his experience of me and what he hears of me should warrant." Now, friends, first, my contention that that third heaven experience happened to someone else, and then, my goodness, let's talk about the third heaven. Okay, so here's my argument. Firstly, what does Paul explicitly say here? He says, I have made up my mind not to boast of anything personal, and even if the Corinthians had tried to get him to, he firmly concludes, I am not going to do so. So there's that. Then secondly, there's the fact of the matter that no other time in all the 43,293 words of Paul's that we have, in any of the other 12 letters of his that we can read, does he suddenly speak of himself in the third person. Frankly, it's just too awkward sounding to be properly Paul. And then lastly, there's the starkness of the Greek in verse 5. Listen, 
concerning such a man, Toyotu, I will boast. Concerning, however, myself, Emautu, I will not boast. Paul just, in my mind, couldn't be more clear in demarcating two different individuals, that third heaven man and himself, in setting forth this narrative. So that's my little argument. Also, by the way, it doesn't really matter. But now, let's talk about the third heaven, shall we? Except, if I'm being completely honest with you, which, by the way, I always endeavor to be, I have nothing to teach on this topic. I have never been drawn up into the third heaven. I I wouldn't even know where to begin to begin to even say anything. So, and you know I rarely do this, I'm actually going to defer to another teacher. And this is someone, by the way, I very often don't agree with, because frankly, I have never read anything lovelier on this section and on this topic. So this is from the Scottish theologian, William Barclay, and I would actually encourage you, close your eyes, because this is glorious. Listen, he wrote, For the mystic in the Jewish tradition... The great aim of all religious experience is the vision of God and union with him. The mystic always has aimed at that moment of wonder when, quote, the seer and the seen are one, unquote. In their traditions, the Jews said that four rabbis had had this vision of God. Ben Azai had seen the glory and had died. Ben Soma beheld it and went mad. Acker saw it and, quote, cut up the young plants, unquote. That is, in spite of the vision, he became a heretic and ruined the garden of truth. Akiba alone ascended in peace and in peace came back. We cannot even guess what happened to this man Paul references here. We need not form theories about the number of heavens because of the fact that he speaks of the third heaven. He simply means that his spirit rose to an unsurpassable ecstasy in its nearness to God. One lovely thing we may note, for it will help a little. The word paradise comes from a Persian word which means a walled garden. When a Persian king wished to confer a very special honor on someone specially dear to him, he made him a companion of the garden and gave him the right to walk in the royal gardens with him in intimate companionship. In this experience, as never before and never again, the man of whom Paul speaks had been the companion of God. My friends, I really want you to hear me say this. That is our invitation every day. Whether it was Paul or whether it was not, uh, whether we are experiencing the first, second, or third heaven or just another day upon earth, whether he reveals himself in moments of overwhelming ecstasy or in deep-seated peace, the King of Heaven has invited us back to the garden a perfectly restored intimacy like Eden's, and wants to walk with us as companion. 
paradise is our experiential threshold, just as it was for Paul, whether he was traveling, free, or in prison. Friends, this is actually what is ours. I'm going to continue to read. So tremendous, however, were the revelations that God gave me that in order to prevent my becoming absurdly conceited, I was given a physical handicap, one of Satan's angels, to harass me and effectually stop any conceit. Three times I begged the Lord for it to leave me, but his reply has been, my grace is enough for you. For where there is weakness, my power is shown the more completely. Therefore, I have cheerfully made up my mind to be proud of my weaknesses because they mean a deeper experience of the power of Christ. I can even enjoy weaknesses, suffering, privations, persecutions, and difficulties for Christ's sake. For my very weakness makes me strong in Him. But, I would say, and again, I like to do these, this is a theoretical exercise. What if intimacy isn't our goal? What if the companionship of God in the walled garden of the everyday isn't what we're actually after? Then, and again, theoretically, this is perhaps how this section might actually read instead. Listen. So middling, indeed, were the revelations that I had of God that, in order to prevent my falling asleep in them, I received some difficulties, some challenges, some struggles of any number of natures, in order that I might, with full heart, realistically turn my heart toward Him. From that position of remove, I prayed, without really listening for an answer, Lord, please make this struggle stop right now. And then I soldiered on, without really praying again and without listening for his most intimate answers, until mm, things just seemed to get, at least somewhat, somehow, better. Therefore, I have made the most of making up my mind to ignore my weaknesses, because they make life hard, and I don't think the Christian life is supposed to be so costly. I can deplore and ignore my problems, weaknesses, tough times, losses, and challenges, for the sake of making it through. For making it through seems like my only option. That's a pretty bleak rendering of that, isn't it? But friends, you see, if intimacy with Jesus isn't the goal of our journey with him, quite frankly, then something else is going to become the goal of our journey with him. It might be our comfort, our knowledge, our position in the church, something that seems good, but just isn't him. And without the intimacy in place to approach him with confidence, hear his answer, and walk the way alongside him, it all actually devolves into just wanting it to go okay. We miss the revelation of his voice, and we miss the chance in weakness to meet his strength. My friends, there is more for us of him in our trials. I would say to you, do not give 
up. Do not relent. Trust his presence, his purpose, his love. Let's continue. I have made a fool of myself in this boasting business, but you forced me to it. If you only you had had a better opinion of me, it would have been quite unnecessary. For I am not really in the least inferior, nobody as I am, to these extra special messengers. You have had an exhaustive demonstration of the power God gives to a genuine messenger of His in the miracles, signs, and works of spiritual power that you saw with your own eyes. What makes you feel so inferior to other churches? Is it because I have not allowed you to support me financially? My humblest apologies for this great wrong. And even though these words are a bit of a bridge from that last section to the next, kind of more of the same of Paul's slightly ironic tone regarding those extra special messengers, Friends, do not miss his explanation for how we're meant to identify the genuine apostles, and I'd imagine even the pastors and teachers, in our midst. Did you catch that? They should show the power God gives by showing miracles, signs, and works of spiritual power constantly. Wow! I mean, that might change the way a church's selection committee goes about hiring. I mean, no more personal or pastoral consultants, right? Unless, of course, we're consulting directly with the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, here's a question Paul would, I think, have you considering today. When was the last time you directly witnessed a heavenly sign or miracle? And with that, when was the last time you directly experienced spiritual power straight from the throne room of heaven? As I ask that, can you pinpoint those immediately? I mean, can you remember? Well, if so, wonderful. And if not, it might be time to consider the leadership under which you have placed your spiritual journey. Let's continue again. Now, I am all ready to visit you for the third time, and I am still not going to be a burden to you. It is you I want, not your money. Children don't have to put by their savings for their parents. Parents do that for their children. Consequently, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your good, even though it means that the more I love you, the less you love me. All right, then, I hear you say, we agree that he himself had none of our money. But are you thinking that I nevertheless was rogue enough to catch you by some trick? Just think, did I make any profit out of the messengers I sent you? I asked Titus to go and sent a brother with him. You don't think Titus made anything out of you, do you? Yet didn't I act in the same spirit as he and take the same line as he did? FYI, with those words, Paul actually is wrapping up a section of his letter, what we would term five whole chapters, uh, chapters 8 through nearly the end of 12, where almost all the content and all the argument required to get to this point revolves 
around money. Remember, their uncompleted promise to give, their hesitancy to be fully willing, the heart of godly generosity, including its faith-building qualities, the way they've begun to doubt Paul's character in the face of financial questions, how they've fallen under the spell of those super apostles who were bent on personal financial support, and starting to question if, as Paul prepares to return to them for the third time, he might be only in this for the money. I mean, those are the topics that have been hit over these last five chapters. And apart from the godly generosity, faith-building section of chapter 9, I have to conclude for you, what a waste of Paul's time. And two, what a waste of the Corinthians' lives. Instead of five chapters of diving deeper and deeper into the glories of Jesus of Nazareth, glorying in their freedom, they are bound and they bind Paul's writing to discussion of a contemporary currency and system of values that today wouldn't buy you a stick of gum at the convenience store on the corner. Think about it. If I held up one of those sort of awkwardly minted first century denarii in front of you today, you might think I had picked up a piece of trash from the pavement. But to the Corinthians, apparently, it had become the main event. The question for us is, how about for us? What is our main event? If Paul was to write an epistle to the American church, how much time would money get? Possessions, accumulation, the ongoing challenge of giving and generosity, are these the things he would have to be writing about? Or, with our hearts aligning with the movements of the Holy Spirit, our highest hopes, the joy of more deeply abiding in Jesus, would Paul get to assume uh, over our spiritual and financial house that it was all in order, that we were ready to go after the highest things? I mean, would we get to receive a Romans 8 rather than reading again through 2 Corinthians 8? Friends, our present lives will tell. Let's finish the chapter. Are you thinking all this time that I am trying to justify myself in your eyes? Actually, I'm speaking in Christ before God himself, and my only reason for so doing is to help you in your spiritual life. For I must confess that I am afraid that when I come, I shall not perhaps find you as I should like to find you, and that you will not find me coming quite as you would like me to come. I am afraid of finding arguments, jealousy, ill-feeling, divided loyalty, slander, whispering, pride, and disharmony. When I come, will God make me feel ashamed of you as I stand among you? Shall I have to grieve over many who have sinned already and are not yet sorry for their impurity, the immorality, and the lustfulness of which they are guilty? As Paul writes those words from that, again, position of remove, but again, preparing to possibly be together with them, it kind of makes me think of where we are. For the last, coming up on five months, rather than being together every week, both at Anchor and just around town, you and I have been in varying degrees of isolation and remove. 
I remember saying to Jenny about the middle of the first full week of the shutdown, well, now begins the battle of the inner life. Is that how you've found it to be? As a battle to win that battlefield of your heart and mind? As a time to fight those feelings of desperation and instead to present your inner life as a ready place for communion with Jesus? Indeed, reading through that conclusion, verses 19, 20, and 21, I've actually heard in my heart Paul's words in quite a different way, especially in this season. So let me close with this. All this time, you have had ample opportunity to dig down deep into the realities of your forever finished justification. Christ himself, God himself, has been leaning forward to speak to you personally. His only reason for so doing is to establish his spiritual life in you. For he professes that he is always delighted to come to you and to make you into the person he should like you to be. And I guarantee that when his presence is fully manifest, you will find him even better than you'd hoped he could be. He will come to end all argument, all human need for comparison, hatred, division, lying speech, rumor milling, pride and disharmony in you. When he comes, he will be so proud of your inviting him to come. He will wipe the every tear from your eye, remind you of your perfect freedom from sin, eradicating all guilt and shame, and he will teach you of the glory of his way and of the righteousness he's already imputed to you. My friends, isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't he? Thanks for listening.